Well, we are going to read scripture here. I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Tom is preaching on chapter 2, verses 14 through 16 primarily. But for the context, I'm going to read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and then we're going to pray. So if you'd like, please stand with me for the reading of the word, if you can. If not, no problem. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I'm reading from the NASB. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given your word to your saints. Father, I pray that as Tom preaches today, many would be built up and we would understand and have the mind of Christ. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows and understands me. That's what you say, Lord. Help us to know and understand you as we read and hear your word preached. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. good to be in the building again. It's good to see you guys, and uh, I get the advantage of not having to wear masks, which makes it extra good. I <laughs> uh, wanted to remind you that, this, that the teaching hour going forward, anytime that we're in the building or not, we will have it available also online, uh, the, the uh, live stream version, the video version. Steve said that uh, his favorite way to to digest the teaching is podcast. You know, they used to say of some speakers that they had a face for radio. Now, now they say Tom has a face for podcast. So, I, I, <laughs> I want to uh, first. I want to say you need your Bibles. We're going to be in First Corinthians chapter two, 
especially those last three verses, and we're also going to be in Isaiah chapter 40. And you're going to want to look at that as, as, we, uh, as we go there. Uh, there's an amazing connection between those two passages. I want to start this morning with a couple of questions. First, which of these would qualify as arrogance on our part for us to agree with God or for us to disagree with God? Okay, if we're arrogant, we, would, we might disagree with God. Uh, it takes humility for human beings to agree with God. Do we agree with God about the wisdom, power, and authority of the gospel that he has entrusted to us? If we do agree with him on that score, and if we speak and act accordingly, <laughs> will those who reject Christ accuse us of being humble or arrogant? Arrogant. In other words, the world's assessment or appraisal of the believer who stands on the truth, the revealed Word of God, is that he's arrogant when God says he's humble. When God says what, the, the height of arrogance is for man to reject God's Word. Which appraisal or assessment matters to us? In the stunner of a passage that we examined last time, the passage that Kerry, my brother Kerry just read to us, 1 Corinthians 2, Paul told the saints of God that God has unveiled to us a hidden wisdom, a wisdom not of this age and not of the rulers of this age who are passing away. He said in no uncertain terms that that, that wisdom is utterly inaccessible to those who are perishing. He referred to that wisdom as things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not even entered the heart of man. Right after speaking of that complete inaccessibility of, of the God-owned wisdom that God is, that Paul's talking about there, that the, the the inaccessibility of that wisdom to most of mankind. Paul then said without hesitation in verse 10, for to us, God revealed them. God revealed those things that eye has not seen and ear has not heard and that have not entered the heart of man. God revealed them to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. I, I just love that phrase, the deep things of God. Paul set before us very clearly how we have come to possess this true and personal knowledge of the living God. The very knowledge that he already told us the world and its wisdom could not come to know. And the how, the how is that God has revealed these things to us through the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And please forgive me, last week I called the Holy Spirit the second person of the Trinity. I know better, that was what you call a verbal typo. God has revealed these things, these deep things of God to us through the Holy Spirit who knows all there is to know of the thoughts and ways of God because the Holy Spirit is eternally of one essence 
with God the Father and God the Son. God declares to us as His people that He has given us the intimate, personal knowledge of Himself by the work of His Holy Spirit through His Word. Through His Word. That's what the whole passage is about. The spiritual thoughts of God that only the Spirit knows revealed to us by His combination of God's spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And where do we find those spiritual words? In the Word of God. In the Bible. Do our words and actions during our lives on this earth display that we, that we agree with God about that or that we don't? In the last three verses of 1 Corinthians 2, Paul brings us to an astonishing reality that many Christians seem reluctant to embrace. Even though it is the birthright of every child of God and of the whole church of God, and that reality, beloved, is authority. Authority. The authority of the message that we bear on God's behalf. And that's what this message is going to be about. The authority of the Word of the cross. Which is the wisdom of God and the power of God to all those who are the called of God. Now let me read those last three verses of chapter 2 again. And then we'll dive in. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. Yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. You see what Paul did there? In verses 15 and 16, he's presenting two parallel propositions. The first is true because the second is true. The reason that we bear the authority to appraise all things, yet we are appraised by no man, is precisely because no man bears the authority to appraise God. The spiritual man knows the very thoughts of God. He knows the deep things of God purely and only because God has graciously made those things known by His Spirit through His Word. Indeed, what makes a, a spiritual man a spiritual man is that he receives and knows the things that God has revealed by the Spirit through the Word. The spiritual man has thereby laid hold of the intimate, personal knowledge of the living God. Not by the man's doing, but by God's doing. But it doesn't stop there. God gave us this personal knowledge of Himself so that like Paul, we would speak that knowledge. That's what Paul says in verse 13. And these things we also speak. Not in words taught by men, but in words taught by the Spirit. Through that knowledge of God and in that proclamation of, of that glorious knowledge, the spiritual man appraises all things. In Ephesians, Paul talks about exposing the darkness to the light. That's what we get to do on God's behalf. 
we appraise, we subject the things in God's creation to the Word of God. Um, Like God, whom no man will ever have the capacity to measure or appraise, the word appraise means to, to assess the legitimacy or the measure of something. Like God, whom no man will have, ever have the capacity to measure or appraise, the spiritual man who bears that God-sourced wisdom to appraise all things is himself appraised by no man. You know what God calls that? Authority. Authority. Paul puts us who have been given the personal knowledge of God in the same category as God, and just bear with me, in the same category as God when it comes to the authority of that which we know and proclaim on God's behalf. He doesn't say our opinions bear any authority. He doesn't say our feelings bear any authority. He says our proclamation of His Word bears His authority. In the first part of verse 16, Paul reaches way back to a declaration that was made by God through the prophet Isaiah almost 700 years earlier. Paul adjusts the wording a little bit, which he gets to do by the Spirit's leading and authority as God is breathing out Scripture through Paul. Paul says in verse 16, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? He's quoting, he's citing Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. When I went back to Isaiah 40 and started really looking at what's going on there, I was, I was, I was astonished and richly blessed by the connection with everything that Paul's been saying in these first two chapters of 1 Corinthians. To understand verse 13 of Isaiah 40, we need to be familiar with the whole, whole paragraph, and then we're going to go even broader than that. I'm going to read to you Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 14. First, just verse 12. Listen to this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. In that verse, Isaiah sets before us four examples of things that God has created. The waters, the heavens, the dust of the earth, and the mountains and hills. He, his question about each of those four created things is essentially the same. Who measures them? And his answer in every case is exactly the same. The answer to all of those questions, of course, is only God. No man could ever begin to do such things. Now, men will, men will happily give their best estimates of such things while they insist that we have the tools to obtain such knowledge. But God's not talking about estimates. Astrophysicists will hap happily tell you that there are on average about a hundred billion stars in every galaxy and about a billion trillion stars in the universe. Isn't it great to know that science has given mankind such accurate and comprehensive knowledge of creation that we can nail down the number of stars in the universe with a margin of error only a few million trillion? 
But Psalm 147 verse 4 says God counts the number of the stars and He gives name, names to every one of them. Only God knows the full measure of all that He has made. With that declaration firmly established, Isaiah then continues in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 40 to present the central question of that chapter. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And the answer in Isaiah, as in 1 Corinthians, is nobody. If the Creator alone is able to measure the vastness and the weightiness of all that He has created, how will man, the creature, measure the Creator? And if we cannot measure or comprehend (laughs) the vastness and the majesty and the holiness and the power that our God alone possesses, how can we ever counsel or advise Him? It's not going to happen. (laughs) But what's amazing is that Paul, immediately after Paul points out that greatest of all no-brainers in the Old Testament, and without skipping a beat, he then comes right back to the astonishing truth that he's been setting before us ever since chapter 1. And he says, but we have the mind of Christ. (laughs) It's certainly true, beloved, that, that even redeemed man's knowledge will always fall infinitely short of a full and complete knowledge of God. Only God fully knows God. That Paul already made that point. The Spirit, only the Spirit knows God, knows the, the thoughts of God, because the Holy Spirit is God. And the knowledge that God does give of Himself will certainly never qualify us to instruct or counsel Him in any way. But stay with me, because if we, if we say that that means that we have received too little of the knowledge of God for us to bear the authority of God as we represent Him on this earth, then we are denying God's very clear promise to us as His beloved children. Are you with me? It's one thing to say we can't know the fullness of God, but it is a very different thing to say that we don't have enough knowledge of God to act and to speak with His authority on earth. We do. We do. And He says that we do. We who belong to Christ have been given the mind of Christ. We do indeed know God. Not superficially, but intimately and personally in a manner that makes us partakers even of the deep things of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says that it is through the knowledge of the One who called us by His grace that we that we have become partakers of the divine nature. I don't even know what that means in full. But, but it's, it's awe-inspiring to think that God would make such a declaration about His children. That we have become partakers of the divine nature through the, the personal knowledge of the living God. God has graciously given to us Wisdom and power that's not of this world. It is entirely of Him. And with that God-sourced wisdom and power, beloved, comes authority. 
One of the dear missionaries that we know and love has said that one of the things that the church lacks in this age is the conviction of of the authority that God has vested in the church. You don't speak prophetically if you don't speak authoritatively into this world. And I don't mean foretelling. I mean forthtelling. To appraise means to measure and assess the validity or the legitimacy of something. And God has given us the authority to appraise all things. The personal knowledge of God equips us and commissions us to appraise everything except God. And just in case we missed it over the last couple of weeks, How, one more time, how have we come to bear such wisdom and power and authority during the time that we have in these mortal bodies? Again, Paul's been giving us that answer ever since chapter 1. It is by the work of the Holy Spirit through His Word that we know God and bear the authority of God. So who measures the mind of God? No one. Who has the Spirit of God? Every child of God. Who knows the thoughts of God that He intends for men to know? Every redeemed saint of God who beholds Him and receives His gracious revelation of Himself in the Bible. Who has been handed the true knowledge of the deep things of God Beloved, you and I have. God says so. All of us whom God has graciously called out of darkness into His marvelous light through childlike faith in Jesus Christ alone. We have the mind of Christ. And that miraculous gift radically changes our relationship with man as surely as it has given us relationship with God. Just as no man can measure or instruct God, Paul tells us that in the same way, no person who does not know God can appraise or instruct us if we're standing on God's Word. Again, he says, he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. That means what it says. Now, I am not saying, I am not saying that we have nothing to learn from unbelievers. God can use a donkey to correct a man if he wants to, and he can use an unbeliever to correct a believer. What I am saying, because God has already said it through Paul, is that when we proclaim the word of God, when we proclaim the word of the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God has given to us, entrusted to us to bear to this world, we do so with the unassailable authority that belongs to God Himself. And no man can rightly deny that authority. I'm not saying that no man will deny that authority. I'm, I'm saying, as Paul says, no man can rightly deny that authority. Beloved, God did not leave us here after saving us, so that we could say to people, try Jesus. 
He didn't leave us here to tell people to apply their own wisdom to what He has made known about His righteousness, their sin, the certainty of His coming judgment of that sin, and about the one and only provision that He has made to deliver men from that judgment into eternal life with God. Those aren't things that men are told to consider, beloved. Those are things that men are commanded to believe. He left us here to tell this world that what they call wisdom, God calls foolishness. Just as He, as he did what we used to call wisdom. You and me. In Acts 17, Paul addressed the people of the city of Athens who loved the illusion of man-sourced wisdom. Here's what he said to them. One of the things he said to them. He said, God <laughs> is now declaring to men that all men everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Does that sound like try Jesus? No, it sounds like abandon the fatal foolishness that you call wisdom. You who gather at the Areopagus in Athens to listen to whatever anybody wants to come and say as long as it doesn't claim to be the absolute truth to which all men are accountable. The world loves to hear everything that anyone wants to say as long as they get to pick for themselves what they believe. But that's not what we're called to say to this world, beloved. We are called to say <laughs> that God has spoken and everyone is accountable to what He has made known about His Son. The authority of Paul's clear and forceful declaration in that passage in Acts 17 authority that appraises all men yet can be challenged rightly by no man is the same authority with which every faithful prophet of God and every follower of Christ has always spoken when they are rightly speaking on God's behalf. It is the authority that belongs to the Word of the living God. And we must not miss the corollary to that. That very authority is what makes us the worst kind of fools in the eyes of this world. There is no fool like an arrogant fool. And that's what the world considers us to be. Anyone who speaks with the kind of confidence that this passage is talking about is going to be seen by the world as supremely arrogant if they don't agree with what we're saying. They don't accept us. They don't understand us. Why? God says, because they can't. And the reason they cannot rightly assess us is because they cannot know God until and unless He graciously calls them by the work of His Spirit who transforms their minds and hearts to hear and believe the Word of the cross. You and I can count on the rejection of Christ and of us by most of the inhabitants of this God-forsaking world. But that rejection changes absolutely nothing about the authority and power of the Word that we bear. 
Paul said, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the Gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's always been true. The world's grievously wrong assessment, both of Christ and of us who belong to Christ, is not some problem that we're supposed to figure out how to fix or that we can work around. It's God's design. Paul already made that point. We talked about that last week. It's God's design. <laughs> Since in the wisdom of God, the world by its wisdom did not come to know God. God was pleased by the foolishness of the message to save those who believe. That's God's design. All right. Just one, one other angle on this. If you believe and you are defined by a foolish delusion, what does that make you? A fool. That's how unbelievers appraise us. And they, and they can't appraise us any differently than that apart from the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit to call and save them. Just as He did you and me when we were as enslaved to darkness as the darkest of hearts. We're supposed to be seen by fools, by those who consider God's Word to be foolishness. How does God call lost sinners out of the darkness into the light? Same way that He called us. His Spirit working through His Word. We're just the bearers of His Word. His Spirit does all the work. Alright, so what? So what? I hope the profound implications of this are already sinking in some. The appraisal that unbelievers have of you and of me and of the church of Jesus Christ has no legitimacy in the eyes of God at all. The world has no ground on which to stand in its judgment of those who speak the Word of God. Since that's true, why would we waste any time or energy or emotion trying to be liked by this world? You know what the definition of frustration is? Setting out to do something that's impossible to do. Why would we waste any time or energy or emotion trying to be liked by this world or even trying to be understood by this world? Our assignment is not to get people to think well of Christ or of us. Our assignment is to know, to proclaim, and to submit to the Word of God by which the author of that Word alone makes men know God. His commission to us is to proclaim the good news that He has entrusted to us. And that brings us right back to the powerful Old Testament passage that Paul kind of glances off of right at the end of this chapter. If we want to rightly consider the ramifications of Paul's point in this morning's passage, it's actually very helpful to go back and look at Isaiah 40 a little further, and that's what I'm going to do. Isaiah chapter 40 actually launches the final and rather long section of the book of Isaiah that goes from chapter 40 to verse 66. And that section is, a, is fundamentally about God's promise to redeem and restore Jerusalem and Judah. In that section, Isaiah begins with God's instruction, that section of Isaiah begins with God's instruction to his faithful prophet 
to comfort to comfort his people with the good news of the coming redemption. Isaiah 40 verses 1 and 2 says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What he's saying is the judgment that she's going to receive, she's already received. Now her iniquity has been removed. God calls out to Isaiah prophetically to tell all of Judah that his chastising judgment against her will not last forever, that it will come to an end when he has removed her sin. This is a gospel promise. God then says to Isaiah, a voice is calling, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. That's a gospel commission. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God says He's coming to redeem and restore His own after He has purified them. Chapters 40-66 through include some of the most powerful and pointed prophecies of the first and second coming of Jesus, the long-promised Messiah, to bring about that promised restoration. In verses 6-8 through of chapter 40, God then says to Isaiah, call out. And Isaiah says, call out what? God's reply starts with the unchangeable nature of His Word. In verse 8, God says, God tells Isaiah to tell Judah, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Then, verses 9-11 through comes the central exhortation of the chapter directed to the people of Judah. Because the Word of the Lord stands forever, because His final Word to His people is really good news, God speaks to the city of Jerusalem as if the city were a person. And He says to that city, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might with His arm ruling for Him. And if you keep going, in fact, it was someone, uh, Robert mentioned Isaiah chapter 59 this morning. Who is that arm of God that's going to come? That's Jesus. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. Like a shepherd, He will tend His flock. In His arm, He will gather the lambs and carry them in His bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who does that sound like? God is commissioning all who have received the good news of His coming to act together as the bearer of that good news. And He commands them to get themselves up to a high mountain and to lift up their voice. How? Mightily. Mightily. And to proclaim the good news with all the power and all the authority that rightly accrues to that, that glorious news that comes from the mouth of God Himself. 
And then he says, do that without fear. You see how this fits and fills, fits with and fills up what Paul is setting before us in this first couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians. We have the word of the cross, beloved. God has spoken. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. We have the very thoughts of God. We have the mind of Christ. We have received the good news. We have come to know things that eye has not seen and ear has not heard and that have not entered the heart of man. Man would never figure this out by himself. All that God has prepared for those who love Him. How did we get to know those things? The work of the Spirit through the Word. Beloved, you and I who belong to Christ, we know, we know with absolute confidence that which every man, woman, and child on this earth most desperately needs to know. What are we doing with that knowledge of these precious and magnificent promises of God? What we're supposed to do is get ourselves up to a high place and lift up our voice mightily and proclaim for all to hear that He is coming. He is coming to judge those who reject Jesus and He is coming to save for all eternity those who accept Him and trust Him. The good news we bear, Paul summarizes as Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Foolishness to the world. The wisdom of God and the power of God to those who are being saved. We are to to make that proclamation without fear of any person or any created thing. In the same chapter of Isaiah, chapter 40, after declaring that God alone has measured all the parts of His creation in ways that man could never measure them, He then proceeds to declare that God has also measured all the nations and all the rulers of all the nations. And here's what God found when He measured them. The nations, verse 15 of chapter 40, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, like a speck of dust on the scales. Verse 23, God reduces rulers to nothing and makes the judges of the earth meaningless. This world cannot understand us. This world in our age finds us increasingly to be worthy only of its disdain and even its disgust. I've never in my 64 years seen a situation in this country where Christians are so despised. That bubble of cultural acceptability was never more than that. And it's a good thing that we now understand where we stand in relationship to to a godless world. Jesus said, they hate you, that's because they hated me first. John 15. But beloved, we have nothing at all to fear of this world's appraisal of us. Nothing. We have nothing to fear from rulers or governments or nations. We have no cause even to fear that we'll get the message wrong. 
As long as that which we are proclaiming is the same good news that God has made crystal clear in His Word. In fact, we have every cause to know that that when the rulers and nations of our age have all passed away, the Word of God that He has graciously made known to us and given to us to bear to this world will still be standing completely unchanged. We have every cause to do what God commanded Jerusalem to do, to get ourselves up on a high place and to lift up our voice mightily with authority. In Acts 4.12, Peter said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. Does that sound like try Jesus? No. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Me. That's what we're supposed to be saying to men and women and children. 2 Timothy 1, Paul said to his beloved disciple Timothy, his, follower, his, his protege, I should say, Timothy, he said, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Now, you might think that, that he's saying be be strong in all the spiritual disciplines. Well, certainly God wants us to. But, but here's what Paul's talking about. Next verse. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the Gospel. How? According to the power of God. In keeping with the power of God. Suffer with me for the Gospel boldly. With courage with the authority that belongs to the proclamation of, the, of the, the truth of God. And he says, the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was granted, granted to us in Jesus Christ from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. The message that we bear to this world is marvelous. Almost done. Paul said, says to his co-worker, don't be timid. Join me in suffering according to the power of God. In John 15, no more than a few hours before he was arrested, to be crucified in in their place and ours, Jesus said to His beloved disciples, You are My friends if you do what I commanded you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends for all things that I have heard from My Father I have made known to you. You did not choose Me, but I chose you. And I appointed you, I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in My name, He may give it to you. The world will confidently accuse us of arrogance if we proclaim the Word of the cross boldly and confidently. But as with all of its appraisal of God and of God's people, the world has everything that matters upside down. The reality is that it is our humility before God that makes us confident and bold as His ambassadors among men.
It's not arrogance for you and me to be bold and uncompromising in proclaiming the word of life. It's arrogance for us not to be bold. Only a lack of humility before God that refuses to agree with Him about the wisdom and the power of the message that He has entrusted to us can make us timid before men in the proclamation of the greatest news of all. So fellow bearers of the Word of the Cross, let's be bold. And I'm saying this to me every bit as much as I'm saying it to you. Let's lift up our voice mightily. Let's proclaim Jesus, knowing that we'll suffer for doing so, knowing that the world will call us fools, but knowing with all confidence that the message we bear is the power of God and the wisdom of God to all who are the, are the called of God. And beloved, they're everywhere. He has made us His own and called us friends so that we would bear much fruit, so that our fruit would remain. Heavenly Father, we ask You to inhabit Your church with the power and authority that belongs to the proclaimers of Your Word in this world. And may we relentlessly call one another to the courage that is fitting for those who bear the message of truth. We ask this for the glory of Jesus and in the name of Jesus. Amen.